Hello and welcome to Food To Go, the food and beverage industry podcast brought to you by the New Food team. I'm the editor of New Food, Joshua Minchin, and I'm joined as ever by my colleague, Grace. Grace, how are you doing? Happy New um, Year. Uh, thank you, Josh. Happy New Year. I'm doing really well, thank you. How was your New Year? Yes, it was good, thank you. Um, was it a big one? Uh, yeah, fairly. fairly. <laughs> we'll um, just leave it at that. <laughs> I always find New Year's Eve quite... Um, like it's always got a tinge of melancholy for me because yeah. one, it's never the night that you think it's going to be, and two, mm. I always feel like it's the end of something. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like the end of Christmas. It's like the end. I don't know. Yeah, end of my me. birthday. So, I for four years in a row, I think I booked like these big events for New Year's, but this year I just went out for dinner with my friends. So, quite understated, but also I sort of preferred it. Yeah, I think um, as you get older, you kind of realise that New Year's Eve is not all it's cracked up to be. But um, yeah. you can still have a good time. We have a good time. We have a party at um, our family's house. It's always a good laugh. But yeah, no, it was good. It was very, very good. When's the cutoff for saying Happy New Year, do you think? Because we're recording this in <laughs> the later part of January. See, I think... When do you think you can stop saying Happy New Year? Probably around the 12th, 13th, 14th. So maybe we're a bit beyond that. But we still got to wish the listeners a Happy New Year. Yeah, I was going to say, is it not so everyone... Is it the first time that you see a person in that new year, even if that ends in September? You, would you still say Happy New Year? No way. Mm. <laughs> it's a hard one, but I just still feel <laughs> like halfway through Jan, beyond that, you think, hang on a minute, what what are you talking about? <laughs> These are difficult questions, aren't they? This is why people tune in. <laughs> um, we've not done weather chat. We'll do no, weather no chat weather chat. New year, freezing. no weather chat. Um, yeah. No, I think we. it's a theme. Freezing, isn't it? Absolutely freezing. I think it was minus four like last night or two nights ago. I really thought we'd gotten over the yeah, cold it's... snap, but here we are, back again. <laughs> no, back again, back again. Um, I'm most upset because the golf course has been frozen over for the last two no. weeks. So, um, I know, I don't know what to do with myself. Well, it's I can restless. still get to the gym, so but... I'm fine. Well, well there you go. Um, some of us enjoy a more leisurely walk outside rather than <laughs> pounding weight to the gym. <laughs> Let's get on to today's podcast rather than speaking about our hobbies. Um, I'm really excited for this one. Yeah, we so am I. We finished off 2020. Yeah, it's going to be great. We finished off 2022 with a lovely roundup. Um, we're kicking off 2023 with something similar, but instead looking ahead to the new year. And I think we found the best person for this. Yeah, I completely agree. Having read your predictions for last year, Josh, you were fairly accurate, which you can read over on the New, new Feed website. Um, but I don't think there's a better man than Chris to predict the year ahead. Absolutely not. Before we introduce our guest, I'll just also do a plug for Grace's Trends piece, which um, she published just a couple of weeks ago. It's a fantastic piece of work. Make sure you get on to New Food and read that. And before you ask, I didn't pay her to say that my predictions were really, really <laughs> accurate. I was reading through it and I thought, hang on a minute, Josh, have you jumped into the future a second? Because you were overwhelmingly correct. So hopefully mine Everyone is... Everyone that's seen your piece has gone to me. Did you like pay Grace? Because <laughs> she's just said how great you are. But I didn't. I'm just very, very no, good. I can confirm he did not pay me to write that. No. Um, mm-hmm. you are under contractual obligation to say that in fairness but yes no I didn't <laughs> I'm just going to put it in the future as Grace said today we've got none other than Professor Chris Elliott joining the pod regular listeners to New Food will know all about Chris he was the author of the Elliott Report in the wake of the horse meat scandal which I just can't believe this is 10 years ago now oh, um, no. feel I remember I remember seeing that feel- on the news 10 years but it doesn't feel that long ago no I was just saying it doesn't 
I mean, I, I wasn't working in the food industry then, but it doesn't feel that long ago, does it? It was quite a big deal when it kicked off. Um, mm. Chris wrote the report and he's become an absolute beacon of food safety. I mean, he really is a superstar. So we're really excited to talk to him in this episode to pick his brains about horse meat um, and also to get his predictions for what, unfortunately, I fear is going to be another very, very tough year for food and beverage. Don't say that. Let's try and be optimistic, but... I, I right. do sort New of have to agree optimistic. with you, Josh. I'll drop this in this. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I'll drop, I'll drop the cynicism, but um, I mean, you'll hear what Chris has to say. I, it, it doesn't sound rosy. Well, let's just see what Chris has to say first before we reach any conclusions ourselves. So it's our pleasure to be joined by a voice that I'm sure is not a stranger to any of our listeners, Grace. He is not, not indeed. He is not. Professor Chris Elliott. Chris, how are you doing? I'm very good, and it's great to be talking with you, uh, Josh and Grace, today. No problem at all, Chris. Um, what I should have said as well is star of BBC Radio 4 at the start. You've been uh, you've been in demand, haven't you, the last couple of weeks? Well, I mean, you, you, quite, quite a lot of demand, and of course, you know, it's because the the 10-year anniversary of, of the horse meat crisis is, is upon us now, so lots of people wanting to know, you know, have things got better, have things got worse, so lots and lots of interest. Chris, I know that. we're going to speak about some 2023 trends in just a second, but can I just pick your brain about a couple of things that you said in that Radio 4 interview, and if you've not heard it, listeners, make sure you do check it out on BBC Sound. It's a fantastic listen. Chris speaks about the horse meat scandal on farming today and also speaks about his his start, I suppose, his career on Life in Science on Radio 4 as well. Um, Although you did just tell me that there's a lot of football chat cut out, which was very disappointing. Well, this is a great opportunity to say I am a lifelong supporter of Northern Ireland and go to virtually every match, certainly all the home matches and, and away matches when I can get to it. And, you know, we, we have good days and bad days. That's the uh, Windsor Park regular, Chris. One thing that you said on Radio 4, which absolutely blew my mind, and I, I don't doubt you in it, but let me just... I think check. I know what you're about to say here. I wrote it down as well. Did you say that there's more money in food fraud than the entire heroin trade around mm-hmm. the world? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a statistic I've, I've quoted quite often, and it really does shock and surprise a lot of people. But the uh, the amount of money that's made in food fraud is quite astronomical. I mean, it was a number of years ago where PwC estimated it's at about 50 billion US dollars per year, and I'm pretty sure they were underestimating that. So it, it's big money to be made by a lot of bad The link people. between food scandal and organised crime. So we saw horse meat, obviously, in 2013. You said that we're on the cusp of something similar very soon and the chances are it will be linked to organised crime. Why isn't that all over every single newspaper and on in the front of mm. uh, the red box that every minister gets in our government? That seems like quite a big issue to have. Yes, Josh, and you know, when I was doing my investigations around the horsemeat scandal, and one of my conclusions was that organised crime was involved in it, I got a very, very hard time around that, particularly from the UK government. It was a message they really didn't want to hear. And basically what they were saying is, I, I didn't have evidence, enough evidence to support that. 
and in one way they were true because you know I'm a university professor I don't go out and, and, and investigate organized crime but what I did know and what I had evidence of was there was a lot of, of organized criminal activity in the food supply system in many different parts of the world you know we've got drug cartels from from uh, Central America we've got the mafia in Italy we've got triad gangs in Southeast Asia so it just goes back to huge amounts of money to be made that the chances of being caught in terms of, of cheating in the food system are pretty slim, actually. And even if you do get caught, the penalties are quite trivial. So compare that with the narcotics trade. You know, there's lots of surveillance, there's lots of vigilance. If you get caught, you could spend many, many years in, in jail and prison. And, and, you know, criminals are criminals. They don't set out just to say, I'm going to be a heroin dealer or I'm going to be a munitions dealer. <laughs> they're, they're just kind of bad people who will try to exploit weaknesses in, in different systems to make money. So I think in terms of organised crime in the UK, there, there now is evidence. And the National Food Crime Unit in the UK has said that there is organised criminal activity happening. So my, my prediction, let's say, and it, it wasn't one that I was, I was happy about, but it is coming to fruition now. That is quite a frightening view, Chris. Probably is the correct one, almost mm. definitely, from your experience. And it, it matters what we've seen as well. I mean, we've, we've seen and heard of drug cartels that traditionally did in cocaine in Mexico turning their attention to avocados instead because there's actually more money in avocados than there is in cocaine. And as you say, the penalties for avocado fraud, and I'm not familiar with the Mexican legal system, but I'd imagine that the penalties for avocado fraud are significantly smaller than they are for cocaine trafficking. So um, no, that's something that I, I, I fear you're right. So fresh off the back of Radio 4, we have got some questions for you looking at 2023. We finished off 2022 with a lovely roundup of the year. Um, I say lovely, Grace. It was a bit pessimistic, wasn't it? Yeah. The, I feel towards the end of the year, there are a few things going on. Cost of living crisis, food inflation, a yeah. lot for consumers and producers and manufacturers all over the food industry to think about. So thinking about last year, do you see any of last year's food trends continuing into 2023? Yeah, and I think your summary, Grace, is a very good one because often when we do these, let's look at a crystal ball to see what's happening next year. You know, there, there's lots of positives that we can talk about. There's going to be a trend in this or more more of this. And unfortunately, it, it, it is very much about 2023 will probably be economically a worse year than 2022. And there's already lots of evidence of people really struggling to feed themselves and feeding their families. So the, the frugality of what people buy, you know, it, it is really trying to source bargains and, and portion sizes are reducing. I noticed, in, I actually, you know, I, I nearly hate to admit this, but I often walk around supermarkets. I don't buy anything. I just like to see what's on the shelves. Mm. And one of the things I've noticed recently, a lot of the portion sizes are much smaller now, mm. a lot smaller. And I think that is, again, about affordability. So I think that will be one of the big trends, people keeping looking for bargains. But I think the, the other, and I think more positive trend, is that... We, we know that, that the, 
difficulty our planet is in terms of, of, of the climate crisis and we know that the food system is a, is a contributor in, in terms of our carbon footprint and that notion that we need a sustainable food system and I spent I still spend a lot of time talking about sustainable food systems so I really hope this drive to get transparency about sustainability will we'll, we'll keep moving forward and we will reach the point where Frontopac labelling will actually carry transparency information about sustainability. You'll get your A, B, C, D, E grade about, about what is and what isn't sustainable. Is that something you see happening in 2023, Chris? Carbon labelling, as, as, that's how I understand yes. it. Is that something you see on the horizon that close? So, I mean, I, I'm already involved in, in, a, in a wonderful initiative called Foundation Earth, and it was formed by, by, by one of my good friends a number of years ago. And, that, and, and his vision was about getting that front of pack labelling. And it's already happening, and there's quite a number of companies now are starting to do that. The difficulty that I see, Josh, is really that there are now quite a lot of, of competitors and lots of people want to label their food in different ways and measure it in different ways. And when you start to get that, the first thing is that you might get companies actually starting to shop around to say, well, which, which front of pack labeling system will I use that will give me the best score, which is not good for the consumer. And the second thing is, if there's multiple different systems, it will be very confusing for people. So one of my big calls is for all of these people, including Foundation Earth, why not come together and agree a single system? Because that will be good Good for consumers and good for the planet. Absolutely, Chris. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I think you're right. It's probably only going to work if it's unified in some form or another. The problem that I foresee, and I don't know whether you agree with whether you don't, is it's so tough out there at the moment, isn't it? For consumers, for manufacturers, for retailers, it's a really tough environment. And do you see a conflict of interest between what consumers want, i.e. lower prices, what retailers and manufacturers want, which is lower manufacturing costs and wider margins and then what's best for the planet in terms of sustainability put shortly do you see consumers opting for sustainable products when money's tight yeah and and i mean i think you've summarized it very well you know i, I call it the tensions that that that, that sit behind our, our, our food system what we have to strive for is a food system that is economically sustainable and what i mean by that is that Everybody in the food supply chain gets a gets a fair uh, living wage for what they do, and you know there's massive massive issues about about farmers and and the biggest squeeze is actually on 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 farmers as opposed to manufacturers or retailers, but the second part is that planetary health that we have to think about as well, and again putting those two things together about economic sustainability and, and planetary sustainability, I'm afraid there, there's a really bad message here is likelihood is the price of food will have to increase. Uh, and you can say, well, that, that's a terrible thing to be saying in, in the middle of an economic crisis, but this is really thinking long term. And there's lots of different social issues about, about the price of food and the price of energy and all sorts of stuff. But if it's not sustainable economically or, or or environmentally we've got massive massive issues ahead of us as you say chris that is a very difficult message to to sell to the public i suppose what do you say then to those people that would come back and say look we're a family of four struggling to keep our house warm and now you want an extra 
20 quid off us for, for our, our, our weekly shop? Do you see, for example, healthy foods not being subsidised further? Do you see unhealthier foods bearing the brunt of that cost increase as it spread across the board? And that's a big question for you to ask. I just, I'm with you. I think they're going to have to increase. I just almost wince when I say that because it's so tough out there. Yeah, I mean, again, you've summarised it very well. And to me, is one of the big levers that can be pulled is not by the food industry, but by our government in terms of thinking about what foods you will tax and what you will subsidise. And to me, the, 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 you know, the sugar tax that was introduced, you know, and, I mean, that was only really for, for, for fizzy drinks and not for food properly. And we have a government that wasn't really too supportive of that and it seems to be disappearing now. But long term, we've got to think about, not, you know, cheap food at the moment is generally unhealthy. And we've got to get to the point where, where unhealthy food, you know what, you get taxed for it. And healthy food, you get subsidised for it. And we have to shift that balance where, where actually you can make much, much better decisions in terms of buying nutritionally sound food and, and not having to think about saving money all the time. That's right, Chris. You mentioned consumers looking for other options, maybe cheaper options or ones that are kind of more widely available in supermarkets with stocks being low at some points in the year. Where do you see alternative proteins heading? Do you think that people are more likely to opt for them now or are they less likely than before? I know they were quite a trend last year, but where do you see them heading in 2023? Yeah, so I mean, alternative proteins, again, is a big, big topic and I've spent a lot of time not only reading about it and, and thinking about it, I, I mean, I, I spent quite a lot of time till end of last year going to Southeast Asia and looking a lot of the uh, production techniques about, about uh, plant-based products and, and insect-based products. And I think in terms of currently, we're talking about less than 1% of, of, of sales are really truly alternative proteins because a lot of it is just the fake foods that are made from you know uh, hyper-processed soya and, and adding lots of glues and gums to it. And, and I think you know there, there were businesses that thought they were going to make a huge amount of money doing this. You know, it, it, you know they... Um, all of the burgers that 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 were 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 introduced a few years ago, and what's very clear is that that the consumer, the public, started to say no. Actually, it was nice to try once or twice, but the taste isn't as good. We're we're, we're paying quite a lot of money for this stuff, and I would prefer to have conventional food. So I think the days of I call it the fake foods, you know, the fake meat and the fake um, 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 eggs and fake cheese. I, I think that is really starting to dwindle and what we really want to do and what I want to do and, and, and see is a lot of the alternative proteins that we're looking at which are really very nutritionally sound can get put into food products and they can be minimally processed so that they are healthy and, 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 and you know, good for us and good for the planet. Where do you stand on insects, Chris? We've got, I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler for our listeners, but we've actually got a fascinating conversation to air in a few weeks around insect consumption. Um, where do you stand on, on insects in the, in the human food supply, whether that's eating whole crickets, whether it's mealworm pasta? Is that something you're up for? I mean, I, I have absolutely no 
problem about eating insects. And I say I've spent a long time in Southeast <laughs> Asia, and I've probably eaten a lot more insects than I actually knew I was eating. Because <laughs> it's just part, part of the food culture, which again is absolutely fine. And there is that um, idea of revulsion. You know, uh, am I going to you know bag a bag of crickets and start to eat the crickets? <clears throat> so I think it'll be much more in, in in processed foods, and it'll be you know it'll be cricket flour and and so forth. Now, whenever we look hard at insect production, unless you're really using food waste it's actually not any more environmentally sound than, than feeding chickens or feeding cattle. So using food waste in a way that is actually economically viable but is also safe is incredibly tricky. So I don't see insect proteins being, being huge, certainly in, in the UK, certainly in Europe for a long time to come. Well, Josh and I, it feels like we have this debate multiple times a week. Josh is very much on the side of he's keen to try it. And I am, I hate to say it, but I'm just not, I, I, I just can't bring myself to think about trying it. But maybe if it like soars in popularity, I'll just have to jump on the trend. I mean, Grace won't even have meal one pasta, Chris, which I, I feel like meal, won't one, even. <laughs> meal one pasta's at the bottom of the list. You know what I mean? We're talking about eating whole crickets in a few years. So there's a, lo- a lot of work to be done on the new food team, let alone... Let <laughs> alone consumer, consumer yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I, I mean, what you're representing is, is kind of people's views. You know, do you suddenly want to, to think about having to eat crunchy bag of crickets? Very few people will want to do that. Whenever those products were introduced into the marketplace, particularly in Europe, they did not do well. I mean, they couldn't get past that consumer perception of, do I stand on it or do I eat it? <laughs> well said, Chris. Um, putting insects <laughs> to the side slightly, what trends do you think will always be popular in the food industry? Sometimes what we forget about food is it should be fun and it should be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I deal with a, a lot of really phenomenal food companies and they are always thinking about what, what, you know, what can make food more tasty. And it's not adding lots of artificial ingredients to it. So I think that minimally processed foods that are tasty, that look good, that smell good, is, is just... The, the right thing to do and again I've been working with one you know very very uh, innovative UK company and they're producing some foods and, and I just think they're fun, fantastic because you know what they are they're, they're, they're still convenience foods because you can get them you pop them in your microwave for, for one minute but they are minimally processed taste really good they look really good smell good and nutritionally sound do you think we get away from that Chris sometimes I mean you, you have kind of said that but Especially at New Food, we're right up against the coalface. We're very, very close to it. And obviously we deal with so much regulation, uh, trends. There's a new trend every week. Um, we deal with so many challenges. Do you think we forget the basics and that food, as you say, has got to look good, taste good, smell good, and that's pretty much that? No, again, because, because, because I do work with a lot of food companies, and most of those food companies, their biggest marketplace are the UK multiples. You know, I think it's, you, you'll maybe know the statistics better than I do, but I think 80% of all food purchases are through the, the big five or big six multiples now. And what those multiples demand 
from their supply base is innovation. And, and the demand is, yes, you, this is okay this week, but in three months' time, we want to see what, what, your, what your latest innovation will be. And companies really struggle around this, uh, always having to innovate, always having to change. And that is because of the unbelievable competitiveness between all of the multiple retailers. And that's going to be something really difficult to come across. But I, I do think if, if all of us just say, do you know what? We want it reasonably priced. We want it tasty, easy to cook and smells good and nutritionally sound. If those were the drivers of the innovation, rather than having you know uh, 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 new packaging which is uh, triangular as in, instead of square, <laughs> I think it would solve all service a lot better. Chris, can I take you in a, sli- a slightly different direction? Um, it's one that we spoke about at the food safety conference in Twickenham back in what well, feels like two years ago now, but it's only, only October <laughs> 2022. We spoke about the quite frankly breakdown in relationship between government and industry certainly in the uk and that's probably been replicated in the us as well do you see any improvement in that relationship happening in 2023 and i suppose the second part of that question is how do we better improve the relationship right the way through the chain so farmer to retailer to consumer because again in a recent column you wrote for new food you argued that farmers just are not getting enough of the pie and consumers are perhaps not aware of how difficult it is to farm Two very big questions there, I know, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put that to you. You can handle it. Yeah, well, I mean, two big questions and two really important questions. So I think, first of all, <coughs> in, in terms of relationships across supply chains, there, there, there has been and there always will be tensions about pricing. But the power of the multiples is just staggering now. And, and you know, so many farmers are producing food at at cost price or even less than cost price and, and we did see that in the UK manifesting itself around eggs because and I, I knew it was coming and it was it was just like a train crash coming because so many poultry farmers I talked to just said is they cannot get the price that they need to keep egg production going and that was because of the soaring costs in terms of fertilizers the soaring costs of, of, of animal feed materials and, you know, ultimately the retailers had to blink and suddenly put emergency funds in to keep the egg industry going. That That's really bad relationship management. I think the second point that you make is about, you know, the role of the food industry and the role of governments in our, in our food supply system. So, and, you know, I suppose I didn't think or plan to get too political about this, but our current government really doesn't care very much about our food supply system. I mean, that's obvious from, from, I was going to say the policies, but I would say probably the lack of policies. I would love somebody in government to tell me, this this is our food policy for the UK now. We, we, we're bereft of one, totally bereft of one. And, and when we go back and think about the pandemic and, you know, there were so many issues around there, Let's never forget, it actually was the food industry that kept food on our, on our shelves and food in our bellies. It, it wasn't government intervention. So I think they, the, the policy has to be about, we need improved food security for the UK. Can we keep thinking about importing more, importing more, which, which is the mantra of the current government? Because guess what? A lot of parts of the world are struggling in terms of climatic uh, issues, the, the 
world's population is growing. So we become on a daily basis less food secure. So we really do need that that overarching strategy. And and you know Dimbleby, uh, Craig, it's a couple of years ago. You know he wrote the national food strategy for England. Part of it was really good, but he did not concentrate on real food security, on, 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 a, on a food system based on the principles of resilience. So I hope whatever governments we get next, that will be a, a priority area for them to concentrate on. Chris, I feel like this is like throwing a hand grenade um, into this podcast, but I know it's something you're very passionate about, so I will pull the pin and throw it in. How do I put this? DCS reversing some of the things that we voted for in the EU referendum, i.e. Brexit in 2016, because, and this is not a political thing to say, it's not working at the moment, is it? So do you see any of that legislation or trade agreements being reversed? Because, as you said on Radio 4, there are the, the checks that were happening are now not happening. And if they are, they're taking too long and we're not getting things through the ports. How do we deal with this? Do we go back to the drawing board? What, what, what do you suggest and what do you see happening in the, in the coming months? So I, I think the, the Brexit project has failed, you know, and, and many of us predicted that would be the case. And I think in, instead of kind of harping back and pointing figures about, about what went wrong and so forth, the, the, the way forward is we, we've got to rebuild relationships with our main trading partners again, particularly in food, which is Europe. Um, we have got to think about how we can work together, how we can ensure good supplies of food, that the food's safe, that the food's authentic. We've got to put in place the right checks, the right measures. So it, it is nearly back to the drawing board now because the food protection that we have now is probably the lowest of my lifetime. And, and I see so many problems happening on a daily basis. And you know, e even yesterday, I had a couple of, of, of messages through, through LinkedIn, people saying is, Craigie, things are not good here in the food industry at the moment. We just don't trust some of the, the materials we're buying in now. But how do you, I mean, you're not a politician, Chris, how, how do you sell that to the electorate? How do we get that message from the industry where, you're right, everyone that I speak to, Across the, across the floor says the same thing. It's just not working. How do you take that message and project it to 65, 70 million people who have gone through the mill in the last four years and seen endless debate after endless debate on Brexit and then say, actually, you know what? It's not working. How, how do we do that? Well, I mean, again, it's so difficult because we, we are just um, overloaded with, with, with different problems and different issues at the, at the moment you know it it's about energy there, there, there's so many things happening I think there is very clear data now to say a good proportion of the food inflation that we're dealing with is directly related to Brexit and I think what we need is a degree of honesty about that and then we think about that inflation, what has caused it, and, and a lot of it has been about the breakdown in relationships, the the bizarre trading, uh, the way that the UK has to trade now, the amount of bureaucracy. And it, it's not only food coming into the country. I, I talked to food companies and said, it's not even worth trying to export food now. It's just impossible. So it's the opportunities that have been lost there in terms of, 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 of earning um, income for the country. So and, and I think the last thing I'll say is that I have had some really good 
conversations with a number of political parties who, if they are being honest with me, absolutely get the importance of saying the UK food system, it's not broken, but it is in really, really bad state and it has to be one of the priorities of the future. You said the food system's in a bad state, Chris, and I know you mentioned it a bit earlier, but if and when do you see food inflation um, declining? Because it just feels like it's been going up and up and there's no signs of it stopping. Yeah, I mean, Grace, even this week when, when you know, the, the data was uh, re- um, published about the, the rate of inflation and it has started to fall now, you know, it's, it's only 10.6%. But behind that... When you look at the numbers, actually, food inflation continues yeah, to roar up. away. Mm-hmm. It is massive. And we have got the issues of Ukraine. And we you know, can't hide from the fact that Ukraine is one of the big drivers of increased food prices. That, and that, that will continue on, until there is some resolution around, around that. The Brexit issues are not going to go away either. So I have a horrible feeling is that we could be having this uh, uh, podcast in a year's time and we're still talking about the horrendous food inflation that we're all facing. To hopefully prevent it happening in a year's time, what do you think the government could do to stop food inflation in its tracks or is there very limited options? I think there's very limited options. I mean, uh, be- because of current government policy and lack of policy, there, there's going to be very, very little changes to the pressures that we have on our, on our food system. Chris, I listened to a podcast last week. Um, you, you'd be shocked to hear that I don't just listen to the back catalogue of Food To Go. There are other podcasts that, that, that go for my ears. It was quite a frightening one. It was a, um, a former CIA analyst. Um, he had some good things to say and some bad things to say. But anyway, he said that the war in Ukraine is decades-long war. It's going to be there for ages. We've got China on the precipice of population collapse. All very frightening. Took it with a hefty pinch of salt. Anyway, the upshot was food security in Europe especially is teetering on the edge and we are just not food secure enough and we don't know what's coming and what's going to hit us. So my question to you is what can we do in the UK and in Europe where the problem is most acute to improve our food security? Is there anything we can do? So I think there, there is another terminology, another buzz phrase that I think we will start to all hear a lot about, Josh, and that is food systems resilience. And actually today I, I've spent several hours talking about food systems resilience. And, and we really need to think about how we can ensure food security in the face of crisis. And we've had the pandemic, we've had Brexit, we've had Ukraine. But the biggest crisis of all, of course, is our changing climate. So that idea about having a food system which is more resilient, and that's around producing more at home and not not being so reliant on imports. It's also about reintroducing the idea of, do you know what, food is seasonal and don't expect to have strawberries in, in December. So I think there, there, there is going to be a lot of thought and discussion. And, you know, um, on the island of Ireland where I live, we, we are really trying to think about our island becoming a model for the world in terms of building a, a system based on the principles of resilience. You said that climate is 
the biggest challenge facing our food system. What do you say then to farmers in, say, the US Midwest that are actually seeing that their growing season for some crops has increased massively because things are warmer? Some arguments that I heard were that actually we can probably offset the disasters of climate change in some areas of the world with benefits in others. Is that something that holds water for you or do I need to go up to the drawing board? No, no. Uh, it's a very, very important part of, of the climate jigsaw. Different parts of the world are being impacted in different ways. And, you know, we used to call it global warming. And, and that's too simple because some parts of the, the planet are getting warmer, some are getting cooler. There's more rainfall in some areas and less than others. And it, it will be really about identifying the areas where actually changes to our climate will, will, will allow more food to be grown and thinking about those areas of the world which are going to be most impacted, how do we try to mitigate against those particular uh, shocks itself. So if I give you one example, and, and again back to Southeast Asia, I'm involved in, in a fairly big project in Thailand. And, and Thailand is now the world's 13th biggest exporter of food, and we eat a huge amount of food, particularly uh, fresh produce and chicken. But it's also now listed as one of the 10 most impacted countries in the world in terms of our changing climate. And what we are doing is, and it's an international effort, about thinking about how do we mitigate against those big issues? Because it's not all just about the temperature is, is increasing, it's about water supply, it's about increased pests and, and, and the potential massive increase in the use of pesticides and so forth. So it's, it's a very complex landscape. And again, this comes back to thinking about things in a, in a very systems-based approach. Chris, it is 10 years since Horsemeat. As I said, you've been a very busy boy this week and last week um, on national broadcasting outlets. You said that you see something similar happening on the horizon, but I'm going to nail you down to a more difficult and concrete answer. What are you most worried about in terms of food fraud in 2023? What is really, really keeping you up at night when it comes to, to food fraud? Where do you see the next scandal happening? The, the, the reason I... Um predicting that to happen is because a lot of the things that we, we talked about the um, if you recall Josh and, and I, I wrote a, a, an article for New Food and I called it the ABC and, and A is about the uh, cost of living crisis that, that, that we're facing at the moment the B is about Brexit and the loss of controls and so forth and C was complacency because our government doesn't really seem to care too much about our food system and, and protecting us now, the big positive in, in the UK is what's called the FIN network, and that stands for the Food Industry Intelligence Network, and that is now the 60 biggest food uh, manufacturing and retail and food service companies in the UK coming together to try to make sure that bad guys don't try to, to penetrate their, their supply chains again. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that those big players will we'll keep the bad guys out. What really worries me is the smaller stores, the independent stores that, that, that buy from cash and carries, the ethnic stores that buy from their own supply chains. Because without those checks and measures going on, you know, at, at ports and, and by environmental health officers, I think we're incredibly exposed. Now, 
Will it be horse meat again? Most likely not. But it could be a myriad of other things. And what worries me is because those people who cheat, they don't really care too much about, about the quality or safety of what they're doing. So there is the potential of something being, let's say, cross-contaminated with huge amount of food allergens. And it could be... Um, uh, peanut powders being being used as, as cheap uh, way of, of uh, adulterating flour and so forth. It could be, uh, you know, massive issues about fraud and herbs and spices that, that we do a lot about. So the commodities, the ingredients, it's very difficult to identify. But without those checks and, and balances and inspections and, and we're, we're, you know, we're, we're not part of the, the uh, EU uh, food intelligence uh, and network anymore, there's just there's just this my, my 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 feeling is that there is a scandal brewing and there's going to be serious problems and it'll be even more difficult to identify the sources because it's not coming through the main retail uh, outlets that's a key, crucial point i think chris isn't it that you just mentioned this linking in consumer minds government minds food safety with food fraud because Food fraud is, is, is an economic crime on the outset if everything goes well. But as you've said, people that are willing to adulterate food aren't particularly bothered about HACCP um, plans or about allergen control. So the likelihood is that food could well be unsafe. That's when we're going to have the problem. That's something that I've linked in my head since, since joining New Food because food fraud, I feel like you almost think it's a victimless crime. It's the big supermarkets that are going to be in trouble and so who cares? But that's not the case, is it? It matters for every single one of us. So if I give you an example, Josh, I mean, I, I've got quite a sophisticated web crawling system in place where any um, notifications, publications about food fraud, about food safety, they, they appear in my inbox every morning. And there's not a week goes past where I don't read about people who die from, from food fraud. And it can be the adulteration of alcohol, which is massive in different parts of the world. Now, I mean, in, in South America, there was dozens of people died from, from drinking methanol, which was uh, uh, being used as a, a, instead of alcohol. Tainted milk in India. There, there are so many cases, people dying, and, and quite often it's children as well, you know, the, the most vulnerable in our society. So is that where we want to be? Do we want to have the same um, um, issues that the developing world countries are, are, are facing at the moment. We, we've gone from a position of having one of the most safe and secure and, and, and authentic food supply systems to one of the most vulnerable in, in the developed world. It, it's just a terrible place we're in now. Chris, grabbing a crystal ball for a second and forecasting the future with a slightly more lighthearted question, what are your top three predictions for the food and beverage trends in 2023? Oh, Craigie. So I would certainly think this idea about moving away from fake food to um, vegetable plant-based food, which is fun to eat. I, I, I think there's, there's going to be a lot of innovation around that and I very much look forward to, to trying that. I think the what we talked about, Grace, in terms of front of pack sustainability labelling, I think sustainability is going to become more and more important. And the third thing is what I would love to see is the growing interest in locally produced food. And, and 
One of the really difficult things about locally produced food is actually selling it, <laughs> getting the marketplaces right. But, you know, there's a lot of, of, of activity now in terms of um, more food markets. There are, you know, a burgeoning number of online platforms now where you can buy local food from as well. So I think that that idea of, of, of you can actually source locally produced food in a, in a reasonable uh, cost and, and, and not too difficult to source, I think would not be a beautiful trend to, to, to watch what happens. It certainly would, Chris. You've worked hard, haven't you, in this uh, this episode, 40 minutes of us just grilling you and asking <laughs> to make predictions. What's been a tougher interview, this one on Radio 4? <laughs> Don't put him on the spot like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think uh, when I start to talk about food systems, things that go right and things that go can go wrong. I, I just forget time, to be honest with you. So, you know, uh, you're, you're lucky you're getting away with just 40 minutes. I could pin you, you and Grace down for another 40 minutes and talk about some other aspects. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Um, you're a very, very busy man. We really, really appreciate it. And of course, we appreciate, as ever, your expertise and your knowledge. So I guess it's same place, same time in 2024, and we'll um, we'll keep score and see how many got right, and see how many got wrong. Oh dear, <laughs> I, I, I look I look I look forward to the next session, Josh and Grace. Lovely to talk to you today. Well, Grace, I hate to tell I told you so, but I did tell you so. That wasn't rosy, was it? Fascinated, but as I predicted, not not optimistic. I was really hoping that the food inflation wouldn't continue and obviously we're just going to have to wait in the coming months to see what happens but Chris seems to be pretty adamant that it's only going to get worse before it gets better. Well the problem is and I mean he did mention this but the problem is that all of the drivers of that inflation they're not going away. Mm. And they can't be pushed to the wayside either they need to be tackled. No no they can't I don't see the Ukrainian war is not finishing anytime soon. Mm. we have as an industry we have mitigated that somewhat you've got a massive mm. fertilizer shortage as a result of that you've then got all of the problems that climate change brings and we're starting to see those more and more acutely now that's not going away so i just as chris said we're gonna have to start paying more for our food and get used to that but as we all said all three of us said in that episode I do, I, I do genuinely wince. I'm doing it now. I wince when I say that because how can you ask people to go to the well at the moment when it's God knows how God knows how expensive it is to to, to pay your energy bills and to do your shopping, and we're going to ask people to get more money out of their pockets for for, for food and drink. It's it's a very mm. tough ask. And I think it's sad as well because obviously the cooking from home, if you can call it a trend, I just feel like from the COVID-19 pandemic, more and more people were starting to cook at home. And what reward are they getting for it now that they're having to pay more to cook in their own house? It just, it almost doesn't seem fair, but it's it's just going to be a case of seeing how the year rolls out regarding food prices. I'm hoping I won't have to write too many more food inflation news pieces, but it doesn't look like that's going to stop anytime soon. No, it doesn't. I think you will. I mean, you say food cooking at home. I mean, over, over Christmas, as I'm sure you did, we, uh, I was going to say entertained, but that's like really pretentious. We didn't entertain people. They came <laughs> like a big Victorian um, kind of celebration. Yeah, it makes it sound like down snabby, like we've got this massive mansion that we entertain people. No, that's not the case. Um, <laughs> my point is, when you buy food, when you have people around for dinner, you buy a nice meal, I don't know, you might buy a steak or look up a recipe and do something quite nice, fish, I don't know. Mm. 
it's really, really expensive. I yeah. mean, we had two people around, two of our friends around for dinner, so there's four of us in total. We're looking at like 100 quid for, mm. 100 pounds for, for, for food for all of us. And, albeit nice food, this is not a, a sob story. We we ate very well, but even that's not becoming an option. Um, mm. And some people will say rightly, well, you just have to stop doing that. And I, I completely appreciate that point of view. But there are sectors of our industry that rely on people throwing dinner parties. The premium end of our market relies on people buying that food, not every day, but now and again to treat both themselves and the people that they love. And if people can't do that, can't afford to do that, certain sectors of the industry are going to find it very tough or go under. And then there's even more people that are struggling and the cycle continues on and on and on and on. So Mm. asking people to pay more for food at the moment, I just feel like isn't an option. But as Chris says, I don't think we've got anywhere else to go. I know. And I think you're spot on there, Josh, with treating people, because when you do host, maybe host the right word, host friends and family, you do want to spoil them and get maybe nicer food options. But with even basic ranges going up in price now, there's no kind of real, no one's really getting a bargain anymore because everything's just suffering from food inflation. No, they're not. And I think we should add here, it's important to add that that is absolutely not the most, like that is not the sharp end of this issue. There are people that struggle to fill their cupboards and fridges on mm. a day-to-day basis not struggle yeah. to buy fillets of fish and, and, and ribeye steak so let's make that abundantly clear yeah. however the upper end of the industry is still a problem and it's there that we're seeing the pinch people aren't buying luxury food anymore because it's too expensive at the same time people now are looking for the cheapest options just to fill their cupboards rather than thinking about sustainability and other issues that were kind of they're still pertinent but i suppose people had more time to think about them before food inflation was just such a big a big topic so maybe people aren't really opting for the sustainable options anymore just so they can get by with the basic ranges absolutely but i thought what chris was really really interesting so he called it the uh, the tensions behind our food system but what he said was is, is a view that i've heard from a few different people um i mean jamie crummy at too good to go is one such person we do see sustainability, food safety and food cost or food pricing, I suppose, as three different issues. But but they're not. They're the same issue because mm. sustainability really is at the absolute centre of everything. Because if we don't have a planet to grow food on in 10 years time, it doesn't matter how much the food costs. If there's mm. no fields to grow wheat in in 50 years time because they're all underwater, then it's irrelevant whether it costs 10p or £10. Yeah, There won't be any. So Chris is right in that sustainable food is 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 food going forward there is no way around that um if it costs more then unfortunately it costs more we have to we have to adapt and innovate to to fulfill that and overcome that challenge because as it said without evolving rapidly we're not going to be in a position to grow food and support our population do you think he's right when he said that we're going to see carbon labeling this year do you what do you think about that I really hope so. You know I get quite behind carbon labelling and I just think if it's in front of consumers, they are more likely to pay attention to it rather than having to research something themselves and then make a decision based on their background research. So I've been um, speaking with the University of Nottingham recently about them putting carbon labelling on their um, food products for students and they have said that they have seen um, a big change in what options students and academics alike are opting for. So it's something that I do hope is going to be put onto um, food labelling in the upcoming year. But again, it is quite a big change. There's not going to be, well, in my opinion, um, a new law saying that you have to put it on. It will just be optional. But um, I do think it would be a good step. 
going to just like ride in and with my massive dose of cynicism as you do. I don't think it happens this year, and I'll tell you why. I think Chris is spot on in that it's got to be unified. Mm, um, there's got yeah. to be a central system that does this because otherwise you end up with a competitive market and the people that certify products as A to D for carbon impacts or climate impacts, let's just make it simple. If I run a certification company, Grace, A to D and you do, and we both want the business of the big food manufacturers, what's going to happen? It's not difficult to imagine that there's, I don't know, maybe like I offer a B grade for a bit less than you do. And then I get the business. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And then there's the whole food, there's the whole food fraud side that comes into it. We don't want people to start tampering with labels and going with smaller companies just so that they've got a, um, carbon label that's appealing to consumers but might not be holistically true yeah it's got to be it's got to be right we've got to get this right and my other again I always think with my consumer hat on it, is it a bit it's a lot of pressure to put on people at the moment it's, an, it's another I mean it's, it's almost bad enough the traffic light system in terms of health and nutrition which I'm not saying is a bad thing it's objectively a good thing mm. That's a pressure enough, though, when you're buying food and money's tight and you're trying to make your budget stretch as far as you can and get as much nutritious food for your family as you possibly can. If we then stick another label in front of you to say, well, do you know what? You can get X amount of food for 50 quid, but it's terrible for the environment. What does that do for your mental health? Like, that's, that's not... That's not a good position to be in. That's my only fear about it at the moment. But I completely appreciate what Chris and what so many others have said to me over the last year. We've got to do something. So I do see it coming in. I'm not sure this year's the right year. I think we've got to get it right. I'd rather it take longer and we get it right. But maybe that's not an option. We've got to move quicker. I don't know. The other thing I wanted to raise, uh, Chris didn't hold back in his criticism of the government and what well, the UK government was speaking about here. Um, and their what he described as let's put it as um apathy to our food system what were your thoughts on that because that was that was quite the segment i i i was enthralled listening to that i do agree with chris that there needs to be a better relationship between um the food industry and government because at the moment there is compl- there's a complete lack of uh, faith between the two more so from the industry side of things not having a lack of faith in the government so I do think that there just needs to be more conferences, more laws, more just more discussion when it comes down to it about what needs to be changed. And these changes, they can't just be spoken about. They need to be followed through as well. The problem we've got, if I, if I stick my neutrality cap on, the problem we've got is that the industry feels, from the people that I've spoken to, burned over the last few years. Um, Chris is right absolutely rose to the challenge during the pandemic and kept food on shelves which i think we take for granted i think mm. we we forget that barring the first f- what three four weeks when you couldn't get any flour anywhere because everyone was baking <laughs> bar that really we didn't want for anything did we during that no. horrific time in 2020 early 2021 um that's a gargantuan achievement when you think about the difficulties in running a factory a warehouse a logistics fleet think about trying to run that during really harsh lockdowns and social distancing rules it's a superhuman effort have they got the thanks for it probably not i don't think they even want the thanks they now just want progression that's it i think they 
yeah they want progression but I think we're almost at a standstill at the moment and with everything else going on it might not even be a standstill it might just be kind of taking three steps backwards and they just feel like they're kind of trying to catch up with something that they'd already progressed in previously and now they're getting no help from governing bodies they just almost feel a bit um neglected Brexit's a massive issue here, isn't it? Um, Chris spoke about Brexit. He said the Brexit experiment has failed. Um, It's not something that we can comment on as journalists, but it's an opinion that I've seen shared across a lot of the food and beverage industry. To say Brexit has failed in general is obviously a big statement. Mm -hmm. I think we can all agree that in its current form, it isn't working. The checks that were happening in Rotterdam aren't happening now. So we're checking food here, or as he said, not checking it, which leads to severe lack of confidence in what we're getting in. If there are checks happening, they're taking too long. Um, It's expensive. You've got the veterinary certificates that you have to get now, which are crippling for a lot of sectors, um, a lot of small Mm. businesses. It's really, really tough out there. And as Chris said, some people just aren't even exporting food anymore because it's too difficult. I don't know what the answer is. It's not my job to know what the answer is. I just know that this isn't the answer. Uh, Chris certainly doesn't. Chris is very outspoken about Brexit. He, he'll admit that. Um, I'm not sure we can say that the whole concept of Brexit has failed, not when it was democratically voted for, but we can't really carry on how we're, how we're, how we're going now, can we? If it's coming to a head. I really enjoyed that. We've made some pretty bold predictions. I mean, we've made some of our own. Well, Grace has made some of her own in that article that I mentioned at the top of the episode, so do give that a read. You've heard what Chris had to say. Let's see how the year goes. It's going to be a tough one. Um, mm. We'd love to hear from you in the industry. Um, you can always, always write for New Food Magazine. You've just got to email jminchin at russellpublishing.com. You can find my contact details on the New Food website, which is newfoodmagazine.com. Always, always looking to hear from industry um, in terms of your experiences and your stories and how you're finding it out there. So do get in touch. And yeah, I suppose we've got to wait and see, Grace, haven't we? But not the optimistic start we wanted. Maybe it's because it's January. January is always a bit grim, isn't it? Yeah, Maybe if we it's the weather. February, we'll blame the weather, it's how the cold weather. it is yeah, and our cold. pessimism. It's cold. Um, we'll be back very soon with another episode of Food To Go. As I said, really excited for that one. That's going to focus on insects. So make, so you, make sure you stay tuned for that episode. We've got articles online. We've got issue one of New Food coming out in the back end of February. So make sure you keep an eye on your letterbox for that. That'll be uh, rattling through your door probably first week of March. So plenty going on for new food. We've got our US event, Food Integrity to US, on Tuesday the 24th of January. So if you haven't signed up, there is still just about time. Get yourself on the website, get registered. Uh, we've got a cracker day of content for you. We've got another event on genomics um, and how that impacts the food industry, which I'm really, really excited about. That's in February. So again, get on the website, get yourself signed up. There's loads going on, Grace, isn't there? We're busy. There's so much going on, quite a few events I'm going to, so you'll be able to read the article write-ups from what I learned from all of those. And yeah, well, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our predictions and Chris's as well. He's a lot better at predicting the future. Well, he does it a lot more confidently well, than we do, Josh. Not according to you. I got, what did I get, five out of seven last year? I think, yeah, it was five out of seven, actually. Oh no, it's pretty good. Well, 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 hopefully, I'll get five out of five this year and we'll get a full house. 100% full house. As Grace says, thank you so much for listening to Food to Go. You can catch all of our episodes on the New Food website, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back very soon, but for now, it's goodbye from me. 
and it's goodbye from me. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>